content is an incredibly local thing. It succeeds in places where development patterns are favorable, which is not just in cities, but in certain parts of cities. And if we're not allowed to talk about it at that local level, we're never going to make good policy. One of the things I recommend people do is completely tune out to any national debate about how much transit we should have. Because there is no national answer to that question. There are only local answers to that question. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable businesses and communities. This is your host, Mike Hancox, and today we continue our series of podcasts on urban resilience in partnership with our friends at Island Press. Island Press is the world's leading publisher of books on the environment, and if you want to learn more about Island Press or their Urban Resilience Project, go to www.islandpress.org backslash capital U, capital R, capital P. Our topic today is public transit. Our guest is Jarrett Walker. Dr. Walker is an international consultant in public transit network design and policy with 25 years of experience planning public transit in North America, Europe, Russia, Australia, and New Zealand. His firm, Jarrett Walker & Associates, based in Portland, Oregon, provides transit planning and executive advice to clients worldwide. His book, Human Transit, How Clearer Thinking About Public Transit Can Enrich Our Communities and Our Lives, was published by Island Press in 2011. The book offers an introduction to transit issues for the average reader, designed to help anyone form clearer views that reflect their own values. In addition to his consulting, teaching, and speaking, he writes about public transit at humantransit.org. Jared, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Mike. Glad to be here. So, Jared, the book, why is it important for the average citizen, for the average reader to be able to articulate their values as it relates to public transit? Look, the reality in the United States in particular, but in many other countries as well, is that many of the people who support public transit and want public transit to be better aren't necessarily using public transit themselves for very good reason. And we often find they are bringing, as a result, it's common for people to come to the public transit question without really having to stop and think about what this question is. What is public transit? How does it work? What's the underlying math of it? How does it, how does it work differently from things you may be used to? So, for example, one of the things I was discovering was that people who support public transit but are themselves motorists were bringing a very familiar and repeated set of misunderstandings to the transit question, and I was always having to clear up the same misunderstanding. And that led me to thinking about, okay, what does everyone who is going to think about public transit have to understand about the brute facts of what it is, how it works, in order to have any coherent opinion about it at all? Because if you don't have that sort of basis, you're going to form opinions that lead to policies that don't do what you expect. Got it. So that makes perfect sense to me. And I want to understand a little bit more about why the role that public transit plays in our transportation system now and and what it could be playing in the future and how your book will help citizens engage in a way that gets us where we need to get to. So give us help the audience understand like what percentage of our transportation now is public transit trips? It depends enormously on where you are. And the national average, which I think is, I don't have the figure in my head, but 
the national average of public transit use isn't very important. What matters is public transit use in places that are dense enough to rely upon it. Here in Portland, Oregon, where I live, our regional, as a region, about 12% of our commuters go to work on public transit. That's not enough. But it's, of course, far more than it would be nationally when you're factoring in a whole bunch of rural and, and outer suburban area. Of course, in a city like New York, it has to be much higher. You know, you need to have vastly more people on public transit. The real underlying issue here is that public transit is about using space efficiently. So the use of public transit, the need for public transit, arises from density. Density is lots of people in not very much space. Density means not very much space per person. And so density means the need to use space efficiently, the need to share space efficiently. And that's what transit does. That's why it really makes no sense to talk about national transit policy or national transit statistics. What matters is what's happening in the places that need transit, which are the places where there is simply not room for everyone to drive a car. And that's a growing percentage of the population is living in places like that. The urbanization, both in the United States and on a global scale, is pretty significant. And we hear a lot about, you know, there's a lot of talk right now about the future of transportation and that we're on the cusp of a major revolution relating to whether it be electric vehicles and autonomous vehicles and using technology as a mode to connect people to transit in ways that are not occurring currently. So given this kind of revolution in in transit or transportation, excuse me, what kind of role do you see public transit playing in the future? Is it a greater role or does it become just a, is it a piece of the puzzle? To understand this, we have to step back and understand that prior to all of these inventions and all of this excitement, public transit was had a contradictory mandate. On the one hand, it was about carrying lots of people in very little space, and you measured that on high ridership. But politically, public transit was governed in such a way that there was also this expectation that the transit agency owed a little bit of service to every corner of the region, no matter how low density, no matter how hard to get to, no matter how low the ridership would be. That's what we call the ridership coverage trade-off, or at least that's how I finally theorized it. When I work with transit agencies, and especially when I work with elected officials, I say, hey, look, you've got a conscious decision to make here. To what extent are you about ridership, which requires us to focus our service where the need is greatest? To what extent are we about maximizing ridership, which requires focusing on the places where we can most succeed? And to what extent are we about a kind of social service or process that is about giving a little bit of service to everyone? Even though when we spread service that thin, we're not really achieving very much in terms of ridership. Not very many people are using it. That's called the ridership coverage trade-off. There isn't a right answer to that. Different communities have to think about that and form different priorities. Where that goes then with technology is that where transit agencies are intentionally running low ridership service, service that's driving around in a low-density suburb, not picking up very many people, there is a potential for some of these demand responsive tools to be part of the toolbox that you could use in those kinds of environments. It's not a revolution. It's just another approach to very low density, very low ridership service. And that's what this, the so-called micro transit is. It's basically just demand responsive forms of transit, forms of transit that you call for and ask them to come by your house, which are a way of providing basic lifeline access to very low density areas. Nothing about any of these revolutions changes the urgent need for high-capacity, high-ridership transit, which are trains, 
trams and buses going down major streets where there are lots of people carrying lots of people and fitting together into a big network. You can think about this in terms of productivity. The taxpayer purchases transit by the hour. The cost of operating transit is mostly the cost of the driver's time. So we measure the efficiency of transit in terms of how many people get on the bus for every hour that the bus operates. And a big city bus going down a big street is probably doing 50, 60, 70 boardings an hour. The bus that you see that looks empty most of the time driving around in low-density suburbs is probably doing 10. But nobody has invented a demand-responsive way of getting around, of, of this idea of a bus whose route varies according to who wants it at any particular time. Microtransit, or it used to be called dial-a-ride. Nobody's invented a way of getting anywhere near 10 boardings an hour with that. If you think about what those things have to do, the vehicle goes over here to pick this person up, it goes over there to pick that person up. Only so many times in an hour you can do that. So we're really talking about something that has a very small application in the really, really uh, low ridership end of the market. And it has to be put in the larger context of how much service do we want to deploy to low ridership areas for non-ridership reasons to begin with. It really is in the context of the ridership coverage question. So there's there's two threads here I want to pull on. And I just want to clarify. So I think what I heard you say was that regardless of the size of the vehicle, the cost of transportation is in the ride, is in the driver. So that when you're doing these remote routes and it's a, a larger vehicle that's almost empty, even smaller vehicles are not getting any more efficiency. They're just smaller vehicles. That is a huge and universal misunderstanding about transit. This notion that because we're driving around an empty vehicle and you see empty seats on it, but therefore the transit agency is wasting money. That's not how it works at all. When people are constantly telling me, you know, if you ran smaller vehicles, it would be more efficient. I have to say, no, the only way you get more efficiency that way is to pay the driver less. And in transit agencies where small vehicles are cheaper to operate, it's because the wages and benefits of the driver are less, which it's not directly because of the cost of the vehicle itself. So when we're talking about small vehicle solutions that are cheaper to operate, we are talking about reducing wages and benefits. And we need to be very clear that that's what we're talking about. It's not about the vehicle. That's super helpful and very clarifying and not intuitive for the average person who, d- who hasn't read your book. So the, the other thread I wanted to pull on was this, the trade-off, the ridership coverage trade-off, which I think is really interesting, particularly as it relates to support. I think one of the things you talk about in your book is the, the disconnect between the public support, at least in the abstract for transit, and how we invest money and how we're building systems. There's a disconnect between those two things. I think this ridership coverage trade-off is, at the heart, it seems to me, it's a a political issue, right? It seems to me like, I think of something like Amtrak. And I live in the Northeast Quarter where we could really, uh, we have high ridership. The trains are really not up to speed. They're not really the quality. The tracks are not the quality that they should be. They're very inconsistent with high-quality systems in other countries. Yet the Amtrak system gets attacked for that, that it's a public entity and it's not very well run. At the same time, political politicians, elected officials, put constraints on these agencies that they expect them to have great coverage, that they expect them to cover the western part of the United States where there's vast tracts of land and not as many people, and they don't give them the freedom to make the investments where they need to be made. So help us understand a little bit better about how do we overcome this challenge of what you call the ridership 
coverage trade-off? And how do we make the right decisions around that? So all we can do, it's a conflict. There are two perfectly valid goals for service, and they push us in opposite directions. My job is to make that clear and to make that unavoidable. Amtrak is a great example. If you want Amtrak to provide a train a day across North Dakota, you should not be complaining about the low ridership of that train because ridership is not its purpose, right? The train isn't going across North Dakota because it's looking for riders. The train is going across North Dakota because you, the senator from North Dakota, told it to do that. So that's very clear. And there's nothing wrong with running a train across North Dakota if we're all clear about why we're doing it and what to expect from it. The problem is that transit agencies allow themselves to get framed. You know, you see all of the journalism that is out there about low transit ridership, and it's all based on the false assumption that high ridership is what the transit agencies are trying to do. But you look at the way actual service planning decisions get made, and no, that's not what they're being directed to do. They're being directed to do some of that, but they're also being directed to make sure that everyone gets a little bit of something. They're being directed to figure out a way to get some sort of service up to this person at the end of a canyon who is the hardest person to reach in the whole county or the whole service area. So all we can do is say, look, this is a conflict. These are opposite kinds of network. So we need the community and ultimately the elected officials to tell us what should the priorities be. And so in the network design studies that we do, we will typically start by setting up this question showing that it's inevitable and leading a public comment process that leads to the point where the governing board has the information they need to say, okay, our plan should be X percent motivated by ridership goals and Y percent motivated by coverage goals. And if you put that firewall through your budget, then there's no danger that you're going to inadvertently compromise one goal in pursuit of the other. You know consciously exactly what balance you're striking. And then requests for new coverage service, requests for new low ridership coverage service, compete with other requests for coverage service. They don't compete with possible high ridership services you could offer. We find that just essential to just get to the point where transit agency boards are thinking clearly about what they're doing and conscious of the consequences of the decisions that they're Yeah, it seems like on a, you point out that a lot of the important decisions are at a local level, but it seems like on the national level, and I think this probably relates to investments that the federal government is making at the local level, it seems like there's this paradox here where this the political types get to kind of have their cake and eat it too, right? So they can demand that train going through North Dakota, and then at the same time attack Amtrak for not being as efficient as the private sector. It's kind of the same thing they do with the post office, right? The the idea to me that I can put a 50 cent stamp on something and it can get delivered from a rural place in New York to a rural place in Alaska is unbelievable, right? There's nothing the private sector could ever do to compete with that, yet we're continuously attacking the U.S. Postal Service for not being efficient when we are putting constraints on them to do the public good and be efficient or be able to be competitive with the private sector. That's an excellent example. The premise of the Postal Service is that if there's an island off the coast of Alaska with 100 people on it, we will send a plane out to that island every day so that they get mail delivery, no matter how that expensive that is, because of a principle of getting to everyone. That is the very definition of a coverage approach to service. Include absolutely everyone. And when you say include absolutely everyone, it means there is no limit to what we will pay to get the last few people who are hardest to get to. That's what that ultimately means. So while it seems fair 
that everybody in America gets a postal delivery every day. You could also say, is it fair that somebody on an island off the coast of Alaska has thousands of times more government money spent on getting them mail service than somebody who lives on a street in New York City, just because what they need on, on the island off the coast of Alaska is so expensive. That is the same ridership coverage trade-off. You know, if you t what a ridership approach would do would be to equalize something like investment per citizen. And if you were equalizing investment per citizen in the postal service, the island off the coast of Alaska with 100 people might get a plane with mail every two weeks. But it certainly couldn't expect one every day, given how expensive that is and how few people are benefiting. Right. And as you said, it's a legitimate question, argument about coverage or are we about ridership. What seems unfair to me is to demand the coverage and then rate based on ridership. That's exactly our point. What I do is try to bring elected officials and communities into the presence of reality about what it is legitimate to complain about. And if you're going to complain about a transit agency's ridership, you can only complain about services that are trying to do that. And if you want there to be services that are not trying to do that, services that wouldn't exist if ridership were the goal, then don't complain about the ridership because that's not their purpose. So a lot of what we're after is just that clarity about purposes, which makes it even possible to begin to have a coherent conversation that leads to policies that reflect what people actually want. Great. So you mentioned the misconception. We talked about the misconception of the empty bus and, and that being inefficient. What are some of the other big misconceptions that the average person might have about public transit? One of the big ones is that if you're a motorist, your sense about your ability to get where you're going is mostly about the ability of your vehicle to get where you're going quickly. Transit is different because transit involves waiting it sometimes involves connecting. So the in-vehicle travel time is not necessarily the whole thing or even the big thing. So this shows up constantly in the difficulty that people have in grappling with the concept of frequency in transit. Frequency is how often a vehicle is coming down the transit line, which determines the maximum amount of time you'd have to wait. And I found all through my career that People underestimate the importance of that in determining when you will actually get somewhere. So we always are looking for new ways to present travel time in such a way that people see that frequency is part of it. Because if you're not seeing that, then you're going to fall for things like an incredibly fast service that only leaves twice a day and is therefore very unlikely to be there when you need it. But when in fact, what's usually more useful is a service where the vehicle may not be quite as fast, but where it is going when you need it due to high frequency. So that kind of trade-off between frequency and speed is something that transit people understand, transit riders intuitively understand, because they know about their experience of riding transit and where the time actually goes. But somebody who's coming at this from a motorist really needs to stop and think about that, because a motorist doesn't have an experience of frequency. They don't have an experience of you are stuck until something happens. The closest thing they have is the cycling of traffic signals, which is a couple of minutes, nothing like being stuck for an hour until a bus goes. So can you give us an example of a place where like that impacted or changed a decision regarding what transit investments to make, or at least how hypothetical how that would change your transit investments? Sure. What it might do is if you had a rail line, I'll give you a simple example. There's the commuter rail line between San Francisco and San Jose called Caltrain. It runs down a corridor that goes right through about 20 other suburban downtowns. These towns grew up along this train line. 
So it's just downtown, 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 right as you go all along the way, the, the full distance, 35 miles, I think, between San Jose and San Francisco. So that's the sort of environment, all this density around the, around the stations, that would support good all-day high-frequency service, because, like you would get from a, expect from a light rail line. Because where you have all this activity and where the activity is very diverse, right? You have people and jobs and shopping and schools and people coming and going for all kinds of reasons all the time. And you have local transportation networks that logically converge on those points because they are the downtowns of the local communities. It's an ideal geography for high-frequency all-day transit. Now, historically, instead, the line has been managed for the long-distance commute. The line has been managed for the person at 7 a.m. riding 30 miles into San Francisco or 30 miles down to a Silicon Valley job. So it has been developed as low frequency with a lot of high-speed skip-stop services on the peak. And as a result, it's not very useful for a lot of the things that a line right in that location ought to be useful for. And I think there's a fundamental problem there, which I think most people in the Bay Area recognize. There's an even better example in South Florida right now, where the local stop rail line that was meant to grow into something that people could use to get back and forth between communities up and down South Florida was built using a rail line that's out by the freeway. It misses all the downtowns. It just goes to parking lots next to the freeway. There's never anything anywhere near the station. And then later on, when this private sector group came in to develop what they call Brightline, which is going to be these very high-speed trains between Miami and ultimately Orlando that just make very few stops, that line got put on the train line that goes right through all the historic downtowns going up the coast. So you have exactly the wrong arrangement, right? The pattern that needs the high-frequency local stop all-day service for people to travel between any two towns along the line. And again, there's a downtown kind of every three or four miles up and down South Florida on this old train line. That's not going to be where that service is. Instead, all of those downtowns are going to have nonstop trains pouring through all the time, doing the long-distance work at much lower frequency and not being useful for that. So it's a perfectly wrong arrangement, and everyone I know in South Florida knows that they got this wrong and knows that it's too late to fix it and knows that their grandchildren will probably fix it at some point. But that's the sort of thing that comes up if you're not thinking about frequency. If you're not thinking about frequency, you're going to be too focused on getting a vehicle from A to B very fast and not enough on whether a vehicle will be doing that at all the times that people actually need it. Because if you're a motorist, of course, the vehicle's ready to go whenever you need it, so you don't think that way. So why can't that corridor serve both purposes? Why can't they can't those two two services coexist on that same on that same line? Well, once you get to a really advanced and expensive system, then they can. The subways under the big avenues of Manhattan, they're four track subways. There are fast trains and slow trains, and they're all very frequent. The Northeast Corridor, too, I mean at the intercity level, there's enough service on that corridor that you can have the fast to sell trains, the slower local trains, and they can all be frequent enough that there's pretty much one when you need it. This issue really, though, arises, though, at earlier stages of transit development where you are having to choose between those things in terms of just what you develop first. And one of the things that I've found is that if you start with the long-distance commute, just because that's often the most urgent thing, it's hard to grow a long-distance commuter service into an all-day frequent service because your base are long-distance commuters who are used to skipping a lot of stops and who are used to traveling only at rush hour. So this is a drama that's going around around commuter rail systems all over the country where 
commuter rail systems as constructed in the American imagination and as, as embodied in all sorts of law and policy are heavy rail systems. They use the same tracks as Amtrak and freight trains. They have all sorts of heavy vehicle requirements to deal with that. And the assumption is that they are long distance, fast, concentrated in the peak hours. They make deals to let freight trains use it in the middle of the day because they don't anticipate running trains then. And so they end up locked into a peak only, send a bunch of trains into town, town in the morning, send a bunch of trains out in the afternoon sort of structure. Now it turns out cities are growing so dense around these commuter rail lines. And many of them are so desperate for new subway lines. And yet these commuter rail lines are sitting there with rails and stations and really everything you would need to run high frequency train service inside the city. And we're just fighting against all of these historic requirements associated with the federal definition of commuter rail that limits our ability to do what obviously needs to be done, which is since it would cost a fortune to build a new subway, let's start by just running frequent trains where we already have tracks and stations inside the city where we have the high density. This is an issue in New York City. This is an issue in Chicago. Uh, Los Angeles is looking at this for some of its inner commuter rail segments where there's clearly enough all-day demand for two-way frequent rapid transit. It's a big issue. And Caltrain, it's been an issue forever because the San Francisco-San Jose Caltrain alignment is so perfect for all-day two-way frequent transit. So this is an issue that's going to keep coming up. And it comes down to this problem of how do we shift from a historic balance focus on this one-way express commute, which means, of course, we have a body of existing writers and elected officials who have that expectation and expect that to be protected, while also making the best use of this incredibly precious, scarce infrastructure to do other urgent things that need to be done, like good frequent local transit all day. That leads to my last question, which would be, other than reading your book, what are the big things that we could do to get better transit investments and better transit decisions? Do you have any kind of, boy, if I could just change this, or if we could change this dynamic, things could be a lot different? I think we have to, I think probably that there's a single biggest problem. I mean, I could name many things. You know, the tendency to think about transit as though it works like cars and not stopping to think about how transit actually works. That's what my book is for. Lots of other good resources. I want to call out a great foundation called Transit Center, transitcenter.org which does wonderful publications about transit issues. My own blog, humantransit.org, I do a lot of commentary on these things as they come along. But I think the biggest thing that's wrong in the U.S. is that we think of transit as something that the federal government funds for us, that higher levels of government do for us, and we don't take upon ourselves the challenge of getting it right locally. Transit is an incredibly local thing. It succeeds in places where development patterns are favorable, which is not just in cities, but in certain parts of cities. And if we're not allowed to talk about it at that local level, we're never going to make good policy. One of the things I recommend people do is completely tune out to any national debate about how much transit we should have, because there is no national answer to that question. There are only local answers to that question. We should completely tune out about what national transit ridership is and focus instead on what it is in cities we care about in the places where transit is really needed, which are the places that are too dense for everyone to drive a car. It really doesn't matter what transit ridership is in a town of 10,000 out on the prairie where there's plenty of room for everyone to drive. What matters 
is what's happening in New York City, what's happening in other dense cities, and even in cloud down to, for example, dense college towns, where there's just more travel than you want to accommodate in cars. So I think that's the other big thing. There's an urgent need to localize this debate. I think there's the need for a smaller federal government role and a bigger local role in taking charge of these conversations and understanding that it's not going to happen without local leadership. I guess a final thing I'd mentioned, if you're a city government, is that you cannot think about transit as something that your regional transit agency does for you. The cities that are achieving great things with transit right now are all those that have exerted considerable leadership through city government in demanding and guiding and facilitating and sometimes funding the transit services that they need. That's because dense cities are just going to need more transit per capita than suburban areas. And so a big regional government that's dominated by suburban areas is basically never going to give the core city what it really needs. That's why we're seeing big cities getting into their own transit services or funding transit services in some way, even though they also get services from their regional agency. It comes down to the fact that the support for transit has to come from where people care. And if the caring about the city is embedded in the city government, then there's got to be leadership from there making transit succeed. Jared, I wish we could spend some more time. You're a fascinating guest. I, I appreciate your deep depth of knowledge and breadth of knowledge on this subject. And I really appreciate the work that you do. Thank you for that. And thank you for the book. And thank you for being a guest on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Mike. And thank you all for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash infiniteearthradio and Twitter by following at infiniteearthradio.com.